Good morning, church. I would invite you to open your Bibles on 1 Peter, the first letter of Apostle Peter, chapter 1. The goodness of Jesus. As humans, we are prone to forget, and so part of the job of most of the job of a preacher is to remind ourselves of what we already know. The goodness of Jesus. May we see the goodness of Jesus more clearly this morning. As an act of reverence, if I may uh, ask you to stand up for the reading of the word, if you don't mind. First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 13. You don't need to read with me out loud, you just follow. First Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. These are the very words of God inspired and preserved for you. Please accept as such. You may be seated. So, I'll read verse 20 and 21 again, because that's what we're focusing on this morning. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The theme since verse 17 was to fear God. Verse 17 says, fear God in the sense of living in, in, in sin and so be judged by God because He's not only our Father, but He's also an impartial judge. Verses 18 and 19, last uh, two weeks ago, we saw that we should fear treating the precious blood of Christ as something worthless, something cheap. The theme there, the sense there was that we were ransomed meaning we were set free by the payment of something costly. 
We were set free. We were ransomed. Um, the more enslaved we were, the more costly it was to set us free. The more imprisoned and worse our sentence, the more costly it was for us to be set free. And we saw last time that we were absolutely and completely guilty. Guilty because we inherited sin from our father Adam, and guilty because we acted in sinful ways and therefore we were guilty, condemned. We were also slaves of sin. We could not stop sinning. We were slaves of the devil, entrapped and baited, and he did what he wanted with us. We were also slaves of a vain way of life, a sinful way of life that was empty, that had no meaning. And therefore, there was no amount of money, there was no precious stone or metal or no amount of money printed that could rescue us from that situation. The only thing able to pay the cost of our redemption, the only thing that was able to redeem us, to set us free, was the blood of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Only He could atone and only He could rescue us. And in verse 20, we keep, or Peter keeps, the same theme. It, it's similar to when we receive a gift and we want to be thankful and we want to not look like we treat the gift as a, something worthless. And that increases as we realize that the person put a lot of thought into this gift. It increases even higher when we realize the person spent a lot of money and time to give us this gift. So the more costly the gift is, the more careful we are to offend the person who has given us the gift, right? And in a similar way, Peter is doing the same thing. He's keeping with the verses 17 to 19, he's keeping with that and now elevating the preciousness of the blood of Christ even higher. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This means that before the world was even created, the Son of God had already been chosen as a redeemer of a people who had not even been created and had not even sinned. Before the world even began in eternity past, Christ already had been selected and accepted as the one who would redeem you if you believe in him. And that should really raise up our, the preciousness of his blood. Before history had begun, he was invisible. And then throughout the Old Testament, he was still invisible. However, the time came 
The appointed time came for the Son of God to, came, to come and become visible. And the verse before us says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He was revealed. He appeared in the last times for the sake of you. And that really should cause us to stop for a minute and realize this is such a great privilege. He's not saying that the Old Testament saints did not benefit from the coming of Christ, but he's saying that you and me, New Testament believers, have a special privilege to be living in the times after the Son of God revealed himself. He was invisible in eternity past. He was invisible all the way in the, in the Old Testament, but then became visible. And he says, because of you and me. Because of you and me. We saw in verses 10 to 12, um, we, read, we read this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Twelve, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. So the Old Testament Prophets were prophesying about the Christ. They knew a little bit about who he would be and what time, and they were trying to find out more details. But then the Spirit said to them at that time that they were not serving themselves primarily, but you and me as New Testament believers. Someone said this, Peter emphasized that believers enjoy the blessing of living at the time when God is fulfilling his saving promises. The Old Testament believers knew something of the Messiah. They knew something of the one who would come and rescue them and set them free. But they didn't know much. They were placing their faith in the promises that he would come one day. And we place our faith in the fulfilled promise of the Messiah who has already come. They didn't know much. We know who he is. We know what he said. We know what he suffered. We know he died. We know how he rose again. And before eternity passed, the triune God had made a pact, a covenant to come at the time he did for you and me. So note, first, this is for your sake. Secondly, this was not an afterthought. This was not an afterthought. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. The word foreknowing can be taken in two ways. One of them is when you know of someone. You know of someone before they even come. And for sure, um, people knew about Christ, even from Genesis 3.15, at the time of the fall, 
God says to, this, to say to the say, a serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the Christ, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So they knew something of the Christ that would come, and throughout the Old Testament history of the world, God had increasingly revealed more and more of his plan of salvation to those sinners. But this is more, because it says there that before the foundation of the world, he was foreknown. Before people were even around, he was already foreknown. Foreknown by who? By God himself. God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already had what um, theologians call the covenant of redemption. And I want to stop here and make some points to drive that home. I think it's important because it's in the text. In eternity past, the triune God made a covenant with himself to redeem the world he was yet to create. And if that does not make much sense for you. Think of it this way. God is immutable. So he does not change. What he planned today, he planned in eternity past. God cannot change. We make new plans because we have new ideas. We learn new things. We stop believing wrong things. And the circumstances around us change. And we don't know the future. God knows everything there is to be before eternity past and to eternity future. There is nothing new that God can learn. There is nothing new that nothing that God can needs to correct in himself. So a plan God made for tomorrow must have been made eternity past in the past. So we make plans for next month. Comes next month we don't go through with the plan sometimes, oftentimes. Either because we changed our mind or because circumstances upon which we depend changed. And therefore, we cannot go through either plan. Well, God does not change his mind. And God does not depend on anything outside himself. And God knows everything there is to know. In fact, he not only knows it, but he decrees absolutely everything that has ever happened, that is happening, or will happen. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus was crucified by sinful men according to to the plan of God. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The gospel. 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the plan of God to use the church as the means by which the good news of salvation would be sent to the world was according to God's eternal purpose. R.C. Sproul, whom I loved, said this, 
God does not make it up as he goes along, nor must he be viewed as a bumbling administrator who is so inept in his planning that his blueprint for redemption must be endlessly subject to revision according to the actions of men. God, the God of Scripture, has no plan B or C. His plan A is from everlasting to everlasting. He's both perfect and unchangeable. And because it rests on God's eternal character, which is, among other things, holy, omniscient, immutable. God's eternal plan is not revised because of moral imperfections within it that must be purified. His plan was not corrected or amended because he gained new knowledge or that he lacked at the beginning. God's plan never changes because he never changes and because perfection admits no degrees and cannot be improved upon. So this was not an afterthought. The fact that Jesus came was from eternity past already planned. Yes, we are responsible for the sins that we commit. Yes, Adam and Eve were responsible for the fall. But it was no surprise for God. And that should raise up our appreciation for the God who had to send His own Son to redeem the world because it was no surprise for them. When God was creating the world, He already knew He would have to die, the Son of God would have to die to redeem. And that should increase our appreciation and the cost of the blood of Christ. It's one thing for us to come before a family member or someone we love and they come on a, as a surprise, something happens, an accident, and everyone chips in and everyone, okay, we didn't know about this, we haven't planned, so we just give the money to the hospital um, uh, procedure or whatever it is. But it's another thing when you know your son or beloved is going to go through that, and you're still okay with it. You're still separating the money to go and, and, and pay for it. Third, our hope is not futile hope. Verse 21 says, 1 Peter 1.21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. Christ gave his life as a payment. Who was the payment for? To God the Father himself. To God the Father himself. Jesus was paying when he died and suffered. He was paying God the Father for the penalty of sin with his own life. You and me, as sinners, we deserve death and we deserve condemnation. Jesus was taking our sin and being punished himself in our place. He was paying God also to redeem us from the curse of sin and becoming, by becoming a curse himself in our place. The curse that belonged to you and me, Christ takes 
in our place. Christ, therefore, if he was going to pay for the curse and for the penalty of sin, he had to be under a curse and he had to die for as long as it took for the payment to satisfy God himself. The fact that Jesus raised from the dead proves that the sacrifice was enough. That the anger of God was appeased. That the cost was paid. The penalty was paid. Once there was no more punishment to be paid, once there was no more curse to be paid, once there was no more suffering to be made, Jesus had no point in staying dead. And that's why he was raised up. Because God said, it is finished. It is satisfied. The penalty necessary is paid for. The, uh, my anger is appeased with its full payment in Christ. So that our hope and faith are in God. This should increase our assurance and fix our hope. Because if Jesus died and stayed dead, there would be no way for us to know if we are really forgiven, if we have really been redeemed. In fact, it could probably mean that Jesus was either a sinner himself, because he had to be punished with the penalty of death, or that the payment was not enough. But he did not stay in the grave, did he? God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He was restored to the glory he had before the world began and was rewarded for the finished task. Therefore, he is highly exalted. Right? And he was given the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. For the glory of God. Now I ask you, he promised, he prophesied that he would die. That he would raise back to life. That he would go to heaven. And that he would come back. Right? John, please open your Bible in John 14, please. Gospel of John. Fourteen and verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If you were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. He was able to predict his own death. He was able to prophesy and predict that he would rise up and be glorified. Is he able to fulfill the promise? that he will come back and take us with him. Yes, he is. And here I need to make an application. Death knocks at the door. What do you do? Do you despair as those who have no hope? No. We look to the Christ who died, but did not stay in the grave. 
he was raised up. The suffering and pain and trials and persecution, difficulty come our way. Remember your Lord who suffered and died. He suffered a lot more than we do. He died a death we could not die. But he was not, he did not stay in the grave. He was raised up into life. He promised that he would take us with him. And he can fulfill the promise. Um, the, my employer is laying off a lot of people at the moment. And, and they have been. Uh, there was 18,000 and now uh, 9 more thousand people. Um, my, my, my colleagues have been especially upset lately. The ones that haven't been fired. Um, because we came to realize that when we were first joined, and before we accepted a, a, an offer of employment, we are all promised a pay raise. We are all promised to go up a level. Um, and they really realize now it was all bait and switch. Because over a year later, it hasn't happened. Uh, it was all about, this is what you're having. You know, you're getting a lower... Uh, salary now, but if you come in a few months or weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll sort you out. You'll we'll increase your payment. In fact, not only the, my colleagues were promised that, but my boss had been promised that as well. But she could not fulfill the promise. In fact, she was fired herself. Friends, our God is not such a liar. He is able to fulfill His promises. He has the power to fulfill them. And He has the will to fulfill them. Revelation 21. Please open to the Revelation of John 21, 1-8. to It's a bit long, but I would invite you to praise God by reading this text from your heart. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And who, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers, I will have his heritage. I will 
have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and so forth, which is the second death. God is inviting you and me to put our trust in the only one who can fulfill his promises. Sin, the world, the devil, and your flesh cannot fulfill its promises. Only God can. Put your trust in Jesus and be saved. Fourth and last point. We were redeemed for obedience. We were redeemed for obedience. Verses 14, verse 14, we saw, we are called to be as obedient children. If you go back to 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children. Verse 15 says, be holy in all your conduct. Verse 17 says, conduct yourselves with fear. These are all commandments. And there are a lot more in this letter. In fact, Christ, it says that Christ shed his blood to ransom us from sin, from the futile way, sinful way of living. From eternity past, this means that from eternity past, God had planned to send his son to be killed so that you and I would be rescued from the power of sin into an obedient and holy way of living. In fact, verse 2 of the, the same cha chapter, we saw several months ago that we were called for obedience, elect for obedience. And this really, the analogy there is of us being enslaved by the enemy, sin, the devil, and the world, and our flesh, and then we were set free by the payment of a cost, by being bought by God. And in old times, when you were a prisoner of war and you were enslaved by the enemy and you were redeemed by being bought, you now stopped belonging to the enemy, but you were not free. You were belonging now, slaves of the one who bought you. In fact, Romans 6.18 says, Having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. God, and the point I'm trying to make is God takes obedience really seriously. The way you live your life matters to God. Your behavior matters to God. But the obedience God requires, see in verse 13, Set your hope fully. And look at verse 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. The commandments obey, be holy, and fear are bracketed by the commandment to hope. The type of obedience that God requires is not a moralistic external obedience. This is 
crucial. So many of us try to gain favor from God and try to make to heaven by following a list of things to do and for not following a list of things not to do. The type of obedience that God requires is an obedience of trust and faith and hope. Friends, you can try your whole life to be righteous, to be moral, but unless your heart is changed, it will be vain. It will still be futile and empty. You must be born again. The type of obedience that God requires is not the type of obedience that you look at sin and you really enjoy sin and really like sin, but for the sake of looking moral or for the sake of gaining favor with God or for the sake of making to heaven, you will postpone that for a bit. You will stop these things, at least some of them. The type of obedience that God requires is the type of obedience that looks at the promises of sin, of pleasure of sin, and look at the promises of obedience to Christ, and you trust that promise, not your sin. The type of obedience that God requires is a type of obedience that hopes in His promises and that delights in Him and puts His faith and trust in Him forevermore. Someone said this, Verse 21 reminds the readers again that the holy life to which they are called is a life in which they are trusting in God's promises. Peter was not a moralist who trumpeted virtues for their own sake. A life of holiness is one which God is prized above all things in which believers trust and hope in His goodness. The type of obedience that God requires is the one that looks at His commandments, good as His requirements, and say, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That you look at the precepts of the Lord and say, they are sweeter than honey, much to be desired. They make wise the simple. Friends, Are you trusting in the Lord? Or are you trusting in sin? Are you trusting in the promises of the Lord? Or are you trusting in the promises of the devil and your sin? Your sins, they cannot fulfill their promises. But God can. I invite you today to come before the Lord. Give up on your sinful nature. Give up on trying to, by your own strength, to be righteous. And trust in God, who will give you a new heart and will not reject you. I invite you to pray now. Father, Lord, such a great gift we have in our Lord Jesus Christ dying a cruel death in our place. So much so that he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was us, forsaken by God, forsaken by the world. But you have rescued us 
You set us free with your own blood. I pray, Lord, rise up, stir up our hearts for appreciation and delight in the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the promises in Him. And I pray, Lord, for those who do not delight in You, those who may be trying to escape hell, but do not care for a new heart, for obedience of faith and hope in You. I pray, Lord, do what only Your Holy Spirit can do and set them free. Oh, Lord, give new hearts this morning. Open eyes to see the treasure in Your Word and the treasure in Your um, work and death and resurrection. I pray, Lord, do not leave any of us to our own devices, but wake us up from slumber. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.